Africa rise and shine Africa zosa Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg here in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jolani Tulo, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Fresh clashes in Darfur forces more people to flee their homes. And South Africa's deputy president holds talks with South Sudan leaders. In economics news, South African RAND has strengthened further on Monday. And in sports news, African Cup of Nations qualifiers continue today. But first up, the news with Rolani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Health officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo have confirmed that 24 more people have died of the Ebola virus in the east of the country over the past week. They are warning that local resistance to the disease control measures are complicating efforts to contain the spread. Spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General, Stefan Duyarik, has also warned that violence by rebel groups is hampering efforts to contain the outbreak. The recent spike in violent incidents in Ebola-impacted areas of the Democratic Republic of the Congo is making the response more difficult, increasing the risk of outbreaks spreading not only within the DRC, but also to neighboring countries, with Rwanda and Uganda being particularly at risk. Boko Haram militants have killed a female aid worker they were holding hostage after a deadline with the Nigerian government expired on Monday. She was one of three medical workers kidnapped in West Africa in March. One of the captives was killed last month. In September, Boko Haram posted a video online promising to put to death one of the other two unless the Nigerian government agreed to negotiate. A total of 49 witnesses have been lined in the trial involving Nigerian televangelist Timothy Omotoso in the High Court in Port Elizabeth in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. The 58-year-old pastor faces 63 charges, including rape and racketeering. One of the victims, 22-year-old Cheryl Zondi, has told the court how Omotoso sexually molested her at the tender age of 14. He allegedly trafficked more than 30 girls and women who were from various branches of his church to a house in Umhlanga in KwaZulu-Natal province, where he allegedly sexually exploited them. Zondi was under cross-examination on Monday by defense attorney Peter Doberman. In other words, ma'am, I put it to you that you are lying about what happened to you. With all due respect, that's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard in my life. I don't know how this man thinks I can't remember what happened to me. I was there. It's not a question of not remembering. It's a question of adapting your version and fabricating your version. That's what you've done. If you understand what trauma is in your field of work, I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Trauma involves a lot of remembering and flashbacks and trying to forget things that happened to you. And I'm not trying to sound weak. That's just what happened to me. I didn't want to remember what that man did to me. 
Kenyan authorities are carrying out a review of primary school textbooks after criticism that some of the content is unsuitable for children. Over the weekend, many people on social media shared images of texts which they said were sending the wrong message to children. The BBC's Will Ross has the story. One of the controversial primary school textbooks called Going Places features a story about a member of parliament who has his own helicopter and fleet of cars. With illustrations of cheering children celebrating the MP's lavish lifestyle, there was plenty of criticism on social media. Many people pointed out that better role models should be chosen in a country where corruption scandals involving politicians are all too common. Another English comprehension text had women carrying heavy loads to market while men sat drinking beer and eating roasted meat. A Kenyan education official said all textbooks would be rechecked and any that were unsuitable would be withdrawn. And finally, flash floods in southwestern France have left at least 12 people dead, with one person reported missing. Flooding around the city of Carcassonne has left a trail of overturned vehicles, damaged roads, and collapsed homes. A surge of water swept through a convent, taking an elderly nun to her death. The Ode River hit its highest level in 100 years, approaching 7 metres. Local authorities have advised people to stay indoors. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. Today is Tuesday, October the 16th, the 289th day of 2018, with uh, 76 days left in the year. The number of internally displaced people in Darfur, West Sudan, continues to grow following recent clashes in the Jebel Mara region. Those who were displaced from the Jebel Mara are largely unwilling to return home, citing a lack of food, health services and housing. The UN African Union Joint Peacekeeping Mission in Darfur is preparing to leave Sudan in less than two years and there is concern that the issue of IDPs will remain unresolved. Romel De La Rosa, the mission's governance and community stabilization officer and head of the temporary operating base in Golo, central Darfur, explains its current priorities are for the displaced. Currently our priorities are to support the different intercommunal groups to promote peaceful coexistence and harmony to support the native administrations. This includes Peaceful Coexistence Committee and the Agricultural Protection Committee. Another priority that we have is the implementation of a support community-based infrastructures. Some of these projects include the establishment of police stations 
in strategic locations. These are clustered villages. We call it hotspot where there is potential for clashes between the farmers and the herders. It's a farming land. We need to promote this peaceful coexistence between the farmers and the, the seasonal nomads or herders who migrate from one place to another. Other projects in the pipeline is also the support to the women group in Golo, the livelihood opportunities for women. You mentioned earlier about several projects that the governance and community stabilization section has promised to implement in Golo. One of those projects is to integrate the IDPs of Arakiro gathering site near Golo town into the community. How is that project going? Regarding IDPs and its integration to the communities, we always have this principle that the primary responsible entity for the integration of IDPs is the host government. We are doing this through advocacy with the government. We advocate to them that their basic needs should be provided. UNAMID may not be able to provide this one, but we, we try to link it up also with the different humanitarian actors. Some of the internally displaced persons told us that they don't want to be integrated into the community soon as they don't have basic access to education, foods and housing. What's your comment? In the gathering site that they are located, we continue to provide the protection of civilian mandate. But at the same time, we continue to advocate also with the locality officials that the integration process has to be fast-tracked at the same time, considering those basic needs of IDPs are provided into the communities that they are planning to send these IDPs. What other challenges have your sections faced in Golo locality? Golo is a mountainous area, and it's entirely different from the rest of the places in Darfur. It's like a tropical area. Accessibility is one of the challenges really. We need to access villages and accessing this will really entail a lot of effort and time as well. The living conditions in the temporary operating base that needs really to be improved. The challenge also is the to implement our mandated activities. There are funds available but UN is bureaucracy. We need to follow certain procedures so by the time you need immediately you cannot get the funds right away. It entails really a lot of planning. What are your expectations from the local government? Of course, cooperation and openness. I think we will have this good working relationship with the local authorities. But of course, we have to maintain this. What we have committed to them, based on our mandate, then we have to deliver. That's Romel de la Rosa, UN African Union Joint Peacekeeping Mission in Darfur, UNAMID's Governance and Communica- Community Stabilization Officer, speaking to Set Your Budi. Let's go back in time to today in 2003. Pope John Paul II celebrates the 25th anniversary of his election as Pope, making him the fourth longest serving Pope in Roman Catholic Church history. Today in History, 2003.
South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza has received a briefing on the latest situation in South Sudan as he takes over Special Envoy. Mabuza met with the Special Advisor to the President of South Sudan on decentralization, Tor Deng Mawien. Ntakwanangadan has more. Despite a peace agreement signed by the warring parties in 2015, the people of South Sudan have still not seen an end to the fighting. Basic infrastructure such as health and education facilities have been destroyed. Two million people have fled the country. Another two million are displaced internally, while more than six million are food insecure. Maik Ayi Deng is the minister in the presidency of South Sudan. Since our independence in 2011, South Africa assisted the nascent government of South Sudan through various capacity buildings, especially they were helping us to train our administrators. When the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, fractured in 2013, South Africa once again, through ANC, took a lead alongside other African Revolutionary parties like CCM to assist the SPLM to forge Arusha Reunification Agreement. South Africa was the first country to voice the support for South Sudan National Dialogue. That was announced in 2016 by His Excellency President Salfa Kir Mayadit. Uh, So, Your Excellency, you are welcome to your country, South Sudan. Deputy President Mabuza has met President Salva Kir and he is expected to hold talks with various role players on the ongoing efforts to find lasting peace, stability and development in the Republic of South Sudan. I'm Takwanangatan in Johannesburg. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says the country's soldiers will continue their mission in Somalia until peace and stability in the Horn of African nation is realized. Kenyatta vowed he will not withdraw Kenya Defense Forces soldiers from Somalia before peace and stability is restored. Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab is fighting to overthrow the internationally backed Somali government but has also carried out attacks in neighboring Kenya which has deployed troops as part of the African Union mission in Somalia, Amisom. James Shimangula reports. The United Nations Security Council's mandate for Amisom troops to end their mission in Somalia ends on the 31st of May next year. In other words, it is on that date that more than 20,000 Amisom troops will officially withdraw from the Horn of Africa nation. The troops have been drawn from Uganda. Burundi, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Sierra Leone, and Kenya. Now Kenya says its troops will remain in Somalia after the rest of the troops withdraw from there. Officially announcing that Kenyan troops will stay in Somalia after the expiry of the AMISOM mission there, President Uhuru Kenyatta said, We will continue to maintain our presence in Somalia under AMISOM until our security objectives and those of the international community are achieved, including the restoration of peace and stability in Somalia. Kenyatta flashed back to seven years ago when Kenya sent troops in Somalia following a spate of deadly attacks in the capital Mogadishu. Our entry into Somalia in 2011 was informed by the threat that our nation faced then and now. This is an indication of the importance that we as a government attach to regional and international peace and security. Apart from Kenya sending troops to Somalia, it has also contributed 
military personnel for international peace missions, as Kenyan leader Uhuru Kenyatta confirms. I wish to acknowledge the fact that Kenya has been a major troop-contributing country to international peace support missions. And in this regard, Kenya has over the years remained receptive to requests to contribute to peace operations in our region and beyond. Alluding to complexity of security in the East African region, Kenyatta brought to light the following factor. Today we live in an age of complex transnational threats to both national and international security. Our region continues to experience major security challenges emanating from terror networks that emerge and have thrived by taking advantage of the ungoverned spaces in the Horn of Africa. These networks continue to target our people in order to create fear and affect our everyday life. That was Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South Africa's main opposition, the Democratic Alliance, has criticized what it calls South Africa's poor border control systems, saying government is unable to control the movement of undocumented migrants. While the opposition party has lashed out at the governing party, criticizing security at the country's borders, its Gauteng province premier candidate Solim Simanga unveiled the DA's immigration plan. Mbali Tetani reports. The DA's Gauteng Premier candidate Solim Simanga says the influx of undocumented migrants hampers the need for proper service delivery. It becomes a bit problematic um, to plan from a government perspective in terms of, uh, um, you know, the people that are flowing into your province. For one, um, you know, you cannot even know at any given time how many people are coming in into your province. If you don't know how many people you're supposed to be catering for, how are you going to ensure that you have enough beds in, in, in your hospitals? How are you going to make sure that you have enough schools? As things stand right now, and if you look at the report um, that is coming from the Gauteng legislature and with the NCOP, it says that Gauteng now is in need of 130 plus schools. Meanwhile, the party says the perception that foreign nationals steal jobs from South Africans is baseless. DA spokesperson on immigration, Jacques Julius. The perception currently out there is that all foreign nationals are taking people's jobs, are taking opportunities from them. All foreign nationals are are taking services away from our people, and it is not. There's no proper uh, uh, reliable sources that actually says that this is a fact. But the ANC has since hit back, saying this is all just electioneering as the country prepares for the polls next year. We are not going to be drawn into a cheap electioneering talk uh, by the DA. We will at the right time be able to respond to some of these issues, take the people of this country into confidence that we were not in any way acting to undermine the laws of the Republic. We have always acted to protect the interest of the people of this country. And where we have opened our borders, we've also done so legally and within the framework of the law. The DA says its plans are not to single out foreigners, but to protect them. Ambali Tetani in Johannesburg. Are you looking for opportunities to network with Africa's business leaders? 
Do you want to engage with movers and shakers and participate in master classes presented by industry experts? Then, here's your personal invitation to attend the fourth annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum and exhibition taking place on the 8th and 9th of November in Cape Town, South Africa. If you want to register, then visit www.awieforum.org. Again, www.awieforum.org. If you cannot make the event, then don't worry. You can follow it through live broadcasts on Channel Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Let's go back in time to today in 2007. Libya wins a seat on the powerful UN Security Council as a non-permanent two-year term member. Today in history, 2007. Foreign direct investment, which is usually referred to as FDI, is an accelerator of the global economy because it gives countries access to external capital, technology, market access and taxable income. However, according to a new report by the UN Conference on Trade and Development, it has fallen more than 40% in the first half of 2018 compared with the same period last year with developing economies escaping the worst of the downturn. James Zahn, UNCTAD Director of Investment and Enterprise, elaborates. Foreign direct investment is particularly important for developing countries because it brings in a package of assets, not only the capital, but also related technology and market access, employment and tax contributions. Of course, it also has some implications because the foreign investors need to make profit and there's also remittance of the profits. You mean not all the profit stays in the country, it goes back to uh, the country that invested in it in the first place? Exactly. So tell me, what is the main message of the UNCTAD report on where we are with foreign direct investment and future investment? The first message is that global foreign direct investment in the first half of 2018 declined and declined significantly declined by 41%. And this is against the backdrop of 23% of decline of 2017. So So it was already on the way down, and that's linked, you think, mainly to the decision in the United States to make tax reform so that that has encouraged companies to bring money back to the states, profits back. It's the major factor because due to the U.S. tax reforms, the multinational companies from the United States retained investment earnings in quite a number of countries back home to the United States. And that affected the overall inflows numbers in those countries. So that's so let's just do it specifically. For example, Switzerland saw quite a big drop, um, 30-odd billion in foreign direct investment. So how is that going to impact on Switzerland, for example? For some countries like Switzerland and like the Netherlands or the Ireland, they are mainly affected this round. It is not major, major impact because investment funds from the U.S. or the corporate earnings that are parked in those countries, they are not meant at this stage to reinvest it in those countries. But they can be used for financing of investment in other countries by the U.S. firms. There are also reinvest earnings that are stayed in other developing countries. 
And for that, that may have some kind of impact because this is, after all, the investable capitals that can be used for the expansion of existing operations in host countries or for investing in the new investment projects. So let's just talk about developing countries then. If you say that foreign direct investment is down in developed richer nations, for example, but it's on the slide perhaps or even stable in Africa, how is that going to affect these countries on the ground? And I see that uh, Western Africa, you have a particular concern for these commodity-rich countries, which have seen a 17% fall. Yeah, you are right that the current FDI decline was mainly due to the decline in developed economies. Um, For developed countries as a whole, FDI inflows for the first half of this year declined by 69%. And for developing economies as a whole, the decline was much lower, so it's about 4%. And for that, I would say it affects developing countries, particularly for small economies. For Africa, it remained at a similar level. I think the decline is less than 3%. For Asia, it's about 6%, Latin America, 7% of decline. Having said that, for developing Asia, we can see there's still a large increase of investment in South Asia and Southeast Asia. So these are the areas we see a kind of large increase of investment in the manufacturing sector. But and is that linked, to, sorry to interrupt, but is that linked to the investment in China? Because China is the leading foreign direct investment recipient, isn't it, after the United States? Yes, it links to China in a sense that China's outward investment into those regions increased. Vietnam, Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Bangladesh, and that's partly because of China's outward investment into those countries, but also partly because some of the labor-intensive export-oriented foreign investment that was in China moved away to those countries. Okay, so I'm just trying to get a picture of whether this is a good or a bad thing, that a lot of money was taken back to the States by big multinationals. Mm-hmm. How is it going to affect people on the ground? What should countries or continents do to boost the money coming in so that they can grow their economies? The repatriation of the corporate earnings, as I said, is mainly in quite a number of developed countries and some developing countries in the Caribbean. But for countries like Africa, and this phenomenon doesn't affect Africa very much. And for Africa today, they attract a lot of investment from other countries like Europe, like emerging markets, the developing countries, advanced developing countries like China, South Africa, Brazil, India, and even Turkey, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia. But having said that, as you rightly pointed out, there is a dire need for investment, for financing of SDGs, for financing of sustainable development in Africa. And that is really a challenge for Africa, aside from mobilizing domestic resources, aside from mobilizing public investment, they still need to mobilize private investment, mobilize foreign investment, because as I said, they bring a different type of assets and factors contributing to sustainable development. And that part is not happening in a desirable way. And this gap for financing of sustainable development goals remains very large. What is the gap? Have you quantified it? Yes, the gap for developing countries as a whole is 2.5 trillion US dollars annually. And this is the estimate and the calculation 
UNCTAD made, and this is widely used. That's James Jean, UNCTAD Director of Investment and Enterprise, speaking to Daniel Johnson of UN News. Channel Africa. Culture and Joy, Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. The court case of the controversial Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso resumes in the Port Elizabeth High Court here in South Africa today. Omotoso and two other accused faced a litany of charges ranging from human trafficking to sexual assault and rape. The first witness, Cheryl Zondi, is expected to continue answering questions under a grueling cross-examination by Omotoso's defense lawyer. Anda Ngonji reports. Omutoso could not stop shaking his head as Cheryl Zondi's cross-examination got underway in the Port Elizabeth High Court. Zondi said the vibrancy and youthfulness of the Jesus Dominion International Church is what attracted her to the institution. She appeared confident during her cross-examination, although emotional at times. Answering growling questions by the defense lawyer, she insisted that she did not have a love life before the controversial pastor allegedly sexually assaulted her. Zondi described Omotoso's behavior during her first encounter with him as inappropriate. She said she had joined the church at the age of 13 and that Omotoso had first sexually abused her when she was 14 years old. Zondi said she did not want to remember some of the details of the alleged sexual abuse she suffered. She testified that she never resisted when Omotoso allegedly sexually assaulted her because he said that she would experience the wrath of God if she refused. She also said she couldn't leave the mission house in Durban where the alleged sexual assault occurred because she was entirely dependent on Omutoso for accommodation and transport. The defense accused Zondi of fabricating her evidence as her verbal and written statements did not tally with her testimony in court. Judge Mandela Makuwala intervened several times disallowing several intimate questions asked by the defense. Justice Makuwala said the questions were unfair to the witness. Meanwhile, coordinator of the ANC Women's League in the Eastern Cape, Nondo Mbinama, says she is not happy with how the defense is handling this victim. I'm not happy about the way the guy who's defending Omotoso is handling the victim because she's young, vulnerable and disturbed. But this attorney keeps on repeating one and the same thing, trying his best so that she can be confused. We are not happy really because as we see it now, the young girl is suffering. I don't know how many times because she suffered when she was raped emotionally by Omotoso. She is being persecuted as if she is the one who is on the wrong. A total of 49 witnesses have been lined up for the trial. I am Andangonji in Port Elizabeth. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo.
Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, the Gambia launches a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to shed light on human rights violations and abuses carried out during the reign of former President Yaya Jame. Twenty-four more people have died of the Ebola virus in the eastern DRC over the past week. And finally, a total of 49 witnesses have been lined in the trial involving Nigerian televangelist Timothy Omotoso in the High Court in Port Elizabeth in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. I'll have details at 9 o'clock. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Field workers from Statistics South Africa visited farms across the country yesterday to begin data collection for the 2017, consen- for the 2017 census of commercial agriculture. The census is aimed at determining what exactly is being farmed to assist potential investors in making informed decisions as well as understand issues of food security and research. Statistician General of South Africa, Mr. Rizenga, Maluleka joined the field workers on their visits and joins us on the line to talk about how it went. Good morning, Mr. Maluleka, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Good morning, Now, Mr. Maluleka, it must have been a very exciting day yesterday, the first day of the work that you are taking on as Statistics South Africa. How would you say the start of a census went? Generally, the work of statisticians, uh, and in particular that of Statistics South Africa, is a very interesting one. I must admit uh, that uh, it went very well out there in the field. Uh, the farming community received us very well, and uh, as they have always done so in uh, previous censuses of commercial agriculture, as well as in other censuses like the population and housing census and sample surveys. Now, in terms of the the farmers themselves, were they receptive? Do they understand the work that you're doing as Statistics South Africa? Certainly. The farmers, uh, uh, we have worked with them on various sample surveys and the the census of commercial agriculture as well, as well as the population and housing census. So they do understand. But in particular on this one, the farmers do understand very well. I mentioned earlier in uh, my opening uh, that uh, the the census is basically aimed at determining what exactly is being farmed um, to to assist in potential investors uh, making informed decisions as well as understanding issues of food security and research. What else can you touch on with regards to the importance of this process? Firstly, there are questions that we will be asking and we started will be asking the, the farmers and the farming community uh, the size of the, the 
that uh, they are occupying or farming on. And we also need to understand the structure of ownership. Uh, we are not interested in the names of who is owning, but in understanding whether the farm is under trustee uh, or the farm is under final ownership. We will also understand issues of employment as well as the financials of the the farming uh, uh, establishment. Now, out of that, investors, when uh, both local and external investors in, in agriculture uh, and fisheries and forestry, these are kind of things that they are interested in and they want to understand. So investors will be uh, interested, uh, uh, researchers, but furthermore, we will be dealing with the issues of the, our national accounts, uh, gross domestic product, as you know. From time to time when we release it, we make reference to the contribution of agriculture and the growth of agriculture. So this will also be very critical coming out of this center. Just for the benefit of the listeners and uh, um, listeners who, who didn't hear our interview last week, how long will this process take, and uh, when can we expect the final concluded results? We will be out there in the field uh, starting from now as we started yesterday, 5th October, until June. But uh, following that, we will be working on processing by November. We seem... Mr. Maluleke, Mr. Maluleke, I have to do this. I have to ask you to repeat that. We just lost you there for a second or two. We are now in field as in on the 15th of October and headed until June 2019. We will be in field. Uh, following which then we will uh, then work on the results and make them available to the public by November 2019. Mr. Maluleke, all the best for this process and uh, the work that you're going to be going through together with your team. And uh, we look forward to getting the, the final conclusions. That's uh, uh, towards the end of uh, next year, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lulu. And again, thank you to the listeners. And uh, that's South Africa's Statistician General, Mr. Rizenga Maluleke, joining us on the line. The legalization of cannabis in Canada for recreational use contravenes the key International Drug Control Convention and is not a healthy lifestyle choice. That's according to Viroje Sumyai, head of the UN's International Narcotics Control Board. Tomorrow, Canada becomes only the second country in the world after Uruguay to fully legalize recreational marijuana, allowing adults to buy the drug from federally licensed producers. Greer speaks ahead of the law change in Canada. We have our strong position on the action of Uruguay government and Canada now. Canada government that the action taken by both country, both government are contravened to the 1961 convention because according to 1961 convention, all drugs classified 
under this convention are recommended for use for medical and scientific purposes only. But this legalization is used for recreational use. The aim of the convention is to protect health and welfare of humankind. So just let the people smoke marijuana. It's not a healthy lifestyle. But isn't it up to the culture of each country to decide for themselves? Uh, the INCB did make a special exemption for chewing coca leaves in Bolivia in 2013, uh, coca being the main ingredient in cocaine. Yes, that is a different case and different avenue that uh, the Bolivia government take because the Bolivia government decided to leave the convention. And after two years, they're coming back with their own reservation about coca leaf chewing. And at the coming back stage, it is a duty of member state to decide that whether allow Bolivia to coming back or not. And then the number of, of voting is much a two-third majority of member state that can prevent Bolivia to coming back. During that period, number of the country that vote against Bolivia coming back is not least to third majority. So Bolivia can come back with their own reservation. That is the case. But for Canada, it's different because now the government of Canada take legal instrument in their parliament already with our concern about the contouring of the aim of the convention. Canada has already ratified 1961 convention full rectification without any reservation. And then this new government, there is a populist policy during campaign for general election in that country that if he win. He will allow the people who vote to smoke marijuana. This is not a healthy lifestyle from my point of view because I'm work in public health setting. I see, I see a lot of problem already because it will create a chain reaction. It's not different from smoking cigarettes. You got lung cancer. You got many NCD heart disease, and the country have to bear burden on the cost of treatment for this kind of sickness to the people who smoke marijuana. This is the thing that will come very soon. Is there anything else, sir, that you'd like to share with us? So I want to. Uh, ask for member state to consider this issue seriously, because it's the it's the member state that you come up with this Sinkan Convention on 1961. Member state agree to set up a rule of law to living together and dealing with some medicine that used for public health. The health and side, not for a recreational use, and then totally agree already. And now, when time passed, 
and then there is a calling for liberalization of lifetime to use marijuana again, and then some state have the reservation about this issue also. There will be some um, statement, just like in ECOSOC meeting, there is statement from member state that they agree with position of INCB with regard to cannabis legalization in Canada, and then they fully support INCB. So member state should negotiate and decided in Commission on Narcotic Drug to allow this thing develop furthermore or not. That's Viroj Sumai, head of the UN's International Narcotics Control Board, speaking to Paulina Greer of UN News. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks, Balungile, and a very good morning. The Zimbabwean Parliament has gazetted that the Companies and Other Business Entities Bill 2018, which will, among others, update the archaic 67-year-old Companies Act, which was legislated way back in 1951. The bill, if passed, will improve corporate governance practices in the private sector and regulate how directors interact with the companies they superintend. Clerk of Parliament, Kennedy Chakuda, invited input on the bill from the public and the business community as stipulated by Section 141 of the Constitution, which requires that Parliament must facilitate public involvement in its legislative and other processes. South African President Sibyl Ramaphosa has rejected newspaper reports that he failed to stop 132 million US dollars being illegally siphoned from VBS Mutual Bank. A report commissioned by the central bank titled that the great bank heist found that money had been looted by several people from VBS, a small lender that bailed out former President Jacob Zuma after a corruption scandal. The President's office says that the allegation that Ramaphosa was informed of the looting at VBS and failed to take action is baseless and unsubstantiated. Ramaphosa urged prosecutors to act against the culprits. South Africa's power utility, Eskom, says that there will always be a risk of low shedding in the country. Last night, the power utility warned of the possibility of load shedding in parts of the country due to planned maintenance. However, it says it was avoided because technicians worked on the units that needed maintenance with speed.
our technicians were able to work on them fairly quickly and return them right on time before the evening peak, and that's why we were able to avoid load sharing. The risk of load sharing is always that the difference, though, is how you manage the risk. So, for example, if uh, you, you do have some units which are offline, you're able to bring them back, back on, on time, then that's how you manage the risk. So we'll do everything possible not to have load sharing, which is what we did yesterday. The future of Kenya's workforce seems bright, with the country's future personnel ranked the fourth on the continent. According to the latest Human Capital Index report, the World Bank ranked Kenya behind Seychelles, Mauritius and Algeria. Globally, Kenya was ranked 94, with the Human Capital Index score of 0.52. Seychelles ranked 43 globally, with a score of 0.65. Mauritius 52, with a score of 0.6. And Algeria 93, with a tie score of 0.52, matching that of Kenya. Except for Algeria, Mauritius and Seychelles, Kenya ranked position 1 when compared among the large economies in sub-Saharan Africa. Meanwhile, Kenya's telecommunication service provider, Safaricom, has been named as the best employer in Africa and 67th in the world by Forbes magazine. That ranked 500 publicly traded companies from 60 countries. The ranking was based on analysis of more than 430,000 global recommendations in which employees were asked to rate their own employer and the likelihood that they would recommend the company to a friend or family member. Despite being a position 6 or rather 67 in a list that was dominated by 185 firms from the US it means many of the potential and current employees like the working environment at Kenya's Safaricom the US dollar trades at 10.50 Botswana Pula it's at 12.20 Zambian Guacha in BRICS currencies the US dollar is trading at 3.75 Brazilian Rope at 65.70 Russian ruble and at 73.69 Indian rupee. 6.92 Chinese yuan, 14.42 to the South African rand. 76 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,226. Platinum, $839 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $81.05 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with the ongoing Olympics. Team South Africa, Team SA sprinter Luke Davis took gold in the men's 100 meters final at the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires in Argentina. The Captonian went into the final off the back of a heat time of 10.56 seconds and took gold in 10.15 seconds. Jason Tito failed to land a mark in his four attempts in the long jump final, while Bianca Erasmus ended 16th overall in the women's high jump final with an evening best of 1.63 meters. Earlier, Kami Prinsloo finished 13th in the women's cross-country event in 13 minutes. 33 seconds. 
Nicole Lowe ended 25th in the 14.02. South Africa's rugby sevens team went down 28-5 to Japan in the bronze medal playoff match with Mpo Mambane scoring the solitary try for the South Africans. Team South Africa will be pinning their Tuesday medal hopes on the firm shoulders of javelin athlete Jano Eersteisen, who was the top qualifier with a career-best 77.69 meters effort. Hendrik van Heesten, Paul Volt, and Martha Murake, 400 meters hurdles, will also be a part of the action. And the South African Broadcasting Corporation, the SABC, has confirmed that they will be broadcasting the Bafana Bafana Africa Cup of Nations qualifier match against Seychelles away in Victoria today. This is according to Chief Operations Officer Chris Maroling during a press conference at the broadcaster's headquarters in Johannesburg. At this stage, it is clear in terms of our contractual obligation that we will be in a position to cover the match um, tomorrow uh, between Bafana Bafana and the Seychelles, which is most unfortunate because we have been unable to broadcast a match that happens on our own shores. I think it shows very clearly that they is a great degree of asymmetry between ourselves and Safa, which requires both parties to ultimately find each other. We will bring the match that will be covered also in Libya at a later stage, outside of South Africa, and also the match that will be covered between Nigeria and South Africa, outside of South Africa. We are appealing to Safa to come to the table and to allow us in the interest of the sporting community in South Africa, the soccer-loving people of our country, for us to broadcast these matches. On to cricket news. Cricket South Africa has revealed the name of the international players for the Mzansi Super League T20 tournament. They include West Indian great Chris Gale and England T20 captain Ian Morgan. Six marquee Proteas players have also been drafted to the six franchises with captain Fav Duplessis representing the Pearl Rocks. The CEO of the franchise, James Fortain, says he's delighted to have Duplessis on board. We, we're super excited to have Faf. He's a fabulous cricketer uh, and, and a good, good man. He's a good person. Uh, so, yeah, he will, a lot of our strategy will revolve around him. He will lead a lot of our strategy. We're just happy to have him on board. We think uh, that we have an equal chance of, uh, of uh, being there or thereabouts at the end. And uh, so, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Deben hit CEO Hendrik Stradom says even though Hashim Amla withdrew from the Proteas tour to Australia due to a hand injury, he will be available to play in the T20 tournament. Stradom says Amla will spearhead his team. Uh, Hashim will definitely be available, so hopefully he'll make a massive impact. I think his, um, his experience will be, will be major for us as a team, and depending on who we get during the draft, he, he should be a, a, a spearhead of that whole uh, team of ours. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Recapping our chosen Darfur forces more people to flee their homes and South Africa's deputy president holds talks with South Sudan leaders. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagaza and Khomutu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, what, 63003327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Techno with a song titled Your Love. Baby, you show. Sure. I wanna do. I'm gonna do. 